box. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull with you on the podcast, streaming online or live on your radio from 12 to 1pm. This is Out of the Box. Every Thursday, I get to sit down with one guest and delve into their record collection and the stories that come with it. If you notice the below average audio quality today, it's because my guest and I are each recording from our homes, or my guest is actually recording from their car. Um, (laughs) Both of us are broadcasting from Gadigal country, so I'd like to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Today I'm joined by Sri Lankan-Australian artist Ramesh Nithyandran. Ramesh received the Sydney Meyer Award in 2015 for ceramics and in 2016 had his solo show at the National Gallery of Australia. His exhibition, The Guardians, kicks off at Sullivan and Strumpf today. So we'll talk about that and Ramesh's life leading up to that and the songs that have soundtracked the big moments. Thanks so much for jumping on the show today, Ramesh. Thanks for having me. Let's jump straight into what your practice and what your art making looks like, because we don't have the luxury of looking at them right now. How would you describe your art to someone who maybe hasn't seen it before? It's a really interesting question, and it's one that I get asked a lot. And I think the really difficult thing about answering that question is you're so attached to your artwork and describing it to someone with verifiable facts or information can sometimes be difficult. Um, But I think the terminology that I always come back to is that I'm primarily interested in figurative sculpture and the histories of figurative sculpture globally. Um, And I primarily use ceramic media, um, as well as painting, bronze, concrete, a whole range of other sculptural media as well to explore these ideas. Um, If you kind of see my work, you'll probably notice that they're highly adorned, they're colourful, the surfaces are often quite shiny, um, and the expressions of the figures or the characters that I make are often, I guess, hyperbolic or in some kind of heightened state. I want to know about the the choice of working in figurative sculpture what does that mean and why why have you taken your art in that direction most artists represent some elements of their worldview and just generally what they're interested in as people in their artwork and i think that's what brings them back to the studio you know every day and you know i'm no different and i think growing up you know i've always been interested in representations of the human body that aren't necessarily linked to naturalism so i've been interested in i guess mediated representations and when i say that i mean you know i'm not interested in realism or photography but i'm interested in how humans have actually somehow represented the body in imaginative ways um through different forms of media and contexts, whether it be in religious contexts or whether it be in, you know, social vernacular contexts, in animation, in film. And, like, growing up, I always remember just loving watching ABC and Disney and anything animated because I was always super excited by the way in which these storytellers, you know, anthropomorphized objects and animals and created kind of imaginative beings to tell stories about the world. And that's kind of stayed with me. Um, My belief as, you know, an artist personally is 
I want to kind of do things with materials that other materials can't. I don't want to make ceramics or sculptures or paintings that look like photography or look like things that currently exist in the world in their forms that are available to the eye. I want to kind of provide an alternate way of seeing. And um, that's kind of one philosophy that's kind of embedded in my practice. But I guess socially or politically or discursively, I'm interested in the ways in which, you know, elements of the human body have been used, manipulated, uh, represented for different social, pedagogical, religious, um, or even philosophical functions. Yeah, I'm fascinated by your choice of ceramics as a medium. I guess when I think of ceramics, I think of a couple of things. I think of objects and shapes that are really small and delicate and refined. And I think of kitchens and bathrooms and spaces that are, again, kind of refined. Maybe I'm using the wrong word, but I wouldn't describe your art that way, Ramesh. It's abstract and big and loud. Why do you use a material like ceramics to make these kind of images? I think the interesting thing about ceramics or ceramics as a medium that's embedded in history is that it's embedded in histories in a multiple or a plural kind of way. And when I think about my work, I think of them in the, within a lineage of figurative sculpture that have been that's been made since, you know, 8000 BC you know there's there's evidence of um tiny terracotta figures from regions that are now like Pakistan um that are these beautiful kind of handmade tiny figurines um just made from terracotta from the earth and fired with fire um in an open space and you can kind of see the way in which they represent different goddesses and gods and the human body in these almost abstract imaginative ways and at the time you know people didn't have mirrors they weren't able to um, see themselves and in that way in which we have the privilege of doing so it's a kind of interesting thing and be that the actual history of making sculptures out of earth is really as old as human civilizations um we often look from an archaeological perspective or a um anthropological perspective which is not a very um fashionable term at the moment but the history of anthropology and the history of archaeology and the history of actually learning about um you know human history and human development ceramics has been core as part of that research um and when i think about my work i don't think about bowls or toilets or the kind of omnipresence of ceramics in industry or in um the context of eating or functional wear. I think about it more in terms of, um, you know, vernacular sculpture you might see in parts of South Asia, as well as, you know, religious sculpture. I think about, you know, the ways in which for thousands and thousands of years we've been using ceramics to represent the human body. Um, and in some ways, you know, I'm using materials that have been available, that are available to me now. They're, you know, manufactured in industries, you know, glazes, clays, um, and other types of chemicals. But I think what's interesting is that ceramics is a medium that is naturally archival. Unless you get a hammer and break it, it's going to last um, for a long time. So I, I kind of imagine that if you put my work next to works um, 
from civilizations and societies that made ceramics thousands of years ago, they might not look too dissimilar. What, what you've just described is the things physically that make up your artwork. And for the rest of the show, we're going to talk about all of the little parts of your life that have, you know, gone into inform the art you make now. But first, I want to jump into a song by Rihanna. Why did you pick this one? It's quite funny. Um, I have often in my studio, I have people working with me as well. And the thing that they often hate is my playlists. <laughs> so I've had to kind of really democratically let them DJ for half the day. Um, be, but I think for me, just a bit of context, I chose all the songs that I chose are songs that I would listen to and mainly women, women of colour, really expressive songs. Um, I love the drama. I love the hyperbole. And I've tried to find songs that exist within popular culture that have somehow conveyed something really interesting about our time and place. Um, it's the first song, Russian Roulette by Rihanna. It's this song that's all about risk. And if you listen to the whole song at the end, there's this kind of gunshot, which kind of indicates death or this kind of destroying or the fact that the risk actually was a measured risk because <laughs> there was some kind of violent ending. And I think this, it's a really interesting analogy around art, you know, um, art is speculative. Um, you know, you put an art object out in the world, it might mean something one day and then the world changes and your object suddenly changes with that. And I think that kind of tenuous or unstable connection we as artists have to materials and meaning is why I chose this song, which is all about risk and drama and you know, having to put yourselves out there in ways that sometimes people don't necessarily appreciate. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Rihanna. The song is called Russian Roulette and it comes with a language warning. And you can see my You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming on the website, that song was called Russian Roulette. It was by Rihanna, and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Ramesh Nithyandran, who is a visual artist. We just spent the first part of the show talking about your practice and what it looks like, and now I want to talk about all of the moments that, you know, have, have led up to that. So let's start from the very beginning. Where did your life start, Ramesh? Um, so I was born in Sri Lanka in 1988, in December. And that was a time when Sri Lanka was still in a stage of civil war. Um, and I'm of Tamil ethnicity. So my parents moved to Sydney as refugees in 1989, when I was less than one year old. And we moved to Auburn in Western Sydney, and that's where I grew up. Um, around those kinds of areas. And I guess I have no memories of living in my birthplace, which is, I guess, a standard experience for lots of people around the world when forced migration becomes a reality for them. Um, but I 
you know, went to primary school at Auburn North, which was close to where I lived. And then I went to high school kind of in the city. And that's a bit about me. <laughs> Describe the experience of growing up in Auburn in, I guess, early 90s, late 80s. What, what was that like for you? You know, I think when you're growing up in an area, you don't know what it's like to grow up in another area. So Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> really, I've only kind of been able to understand the specifics of growing up in that area as I've now live, as I've lived in other places, you know, in the inner west or in the eastern suburbs or whatever. Um, I now live in Ashfield, which isn't actually that far from where I grew up. Um, but essentially what's the gift of hindsight has allowed me to see that, you know, Auburn is essentially a migrant community. Um, lots of refugees who arrive in Australia, um, they're, one of their first places that they live is Auburn. And there's a really kind of multicultural population there. So, you know, I grew up in a, I think for the first years of my life, we were in a small flat and, you know, I could look across the balcony and there were, there was another Tamil family across, um, that I would, that I would like hang out with sometimes. Um, but you know, I'd go to McDonald's a lot. We walked, we lived close to there. Um, we shopped in, you know, the Auburn like mall and Woolworths. My first job was at Auburn Mega Mall at Michelle's Patisserie. Um, and, you know, I think in hindsight, I kind of noticed that there are lots of really amazing things about that place. But, you know, as I was growing up and particularly a teenager, I kind of hated living there. And I think a lot of my... I think lots of teenagers or people as they're forming their views of the world have some kind of angsty sense of not belonging, which is almost like some kind of rite of passage. But... I always felt like my interests were never supported. Like, I was always interested in, you know, art and scribbling and drawing and creative things and, you know, coming, living in a migrant community, there was this real focus on kind of STEM education things. So, you know, my talents weren't valued in that respect. And I think the other difficult thing that I had, which it wasn't difficult, was that I was always quite academic. So, you know, when I was growing up, I was always, like, getting really good marks and, you know, and that was supported by my family. So the art and the creative things that I wanted to do almost felt superfluous to them. Um, And I think locally I never really found friends or a community in any time of my schooling that supported my love of, you know, making things. I can't speak to this on a personal level, but we've had guests on this show who come from migrant backgrounds and a lot of them will describe this dichotomy between the places that they might call home, as in Australia and the place that they've come from. Um, I bring this up because even though it seems like you've got a couple of binaries there, you know, the binary of two homes, as in Australia and Sri Lanka, and then the binary between you know, you wanting to pursue a creative career and your parents wanting you to pursue STEM subjects. To me, your work transcends those binaries, Ramesh. You know, it's it's got this really big, diverse world view. How did you develop that world view? I think that migrant narrative is an interesting one and it's it's a core narrative. And, like, I've never really thought about myself as... I've never had this romantic longing to go back to Sri Lanka and get in a rickshaw and, you know, 
look out at the ocean. Um, it's never been like that, really. What what I think I've always struggled with is finding philosophical or almost worldview connections to people in my communities growing up. And I think being an artist, I was, I've was i been able to find that. And I think that's been the most amazing thing about my career is having access to like-minded people. Um, and of course, there are sections within our community that, uh, you know, are just reflect our society as a whole. So I'm not romanticising in any way. But I think what I... A lot about what I remember about growing up in this context was that there weren't many, like, even today, it's quite rare that migrant narratives are presented in mainstream contexts as positive or beyond cliches, you know. I, I think one of the only mainstream places where migrants are really valued is, like, MasterChef, um, you know, where there's no kind of, hence, crazy tokenism or anything. And uh, I've always struggled with my love of popular culture and my love of, you know, film and Disney and music and art making, but never being able to have access to things that I felt connected to personally or from an identity level. And I think that's what had the most impact on me from a kind of not belonging sense. Um, but from a from the perspective, the other term I think that gets used to describe our experiences are, you know, diaspora. And I think, you know, the, the history of humanity, like that's that movement from whatever, for whatever reason is just core. But um, I have this, I've kind of almost see myself as not so connected to place in a way. Um, I kind of like to see myself as a little bit promiscuous in that I like to think of global narratives and things that happen, but it's a really hard thing to articulate and process. And I think that's why we often come back to very um, almost binary or clear ways of describing it. Like, you know, this idea that there are these two cultures and that we're struggling to fit into one. When in reality, there are actually many cultures within those two cultures that are existing. And it's really about navigating a really... Um, complex plural space. Ramesh, you've picked a Mariah Carey song to play. Tell me about this one. Oh, so again, in my diva theme, um, you know, when I was growing up, I think video hits was what I would always watch um, on the weekend. And I'd wake up and I'd love watching the music videos. And Mariah Carey, Make It Happen, you know, one of her first songs. I think what's it's this kind of rags to riches narrative that she's describing. And I'm not talking about monetary richness. She's almost talking about cultural and creative richness. And there's this sense that, um, you know, through discovering music, she found herself that's kind of embedded in this song. And I really kind of relate to that view as in, you know, when I make my art, I feel valued and I feel a connection to the world in a way that I don't really have in other aspects of my life. Um, and I think the other element which I really relate to in this song is that she talks about how she didn't come from material privilege in this song. Um, she talks about being lonely. She talks about, you know, not having a place to live. And I think 
there's an element here that I really relate to. But the other thing I love about this song is there's this real climactic ending where, you know, she just lets it rip in her true... with her diva pipes. And um, I kind of like that narrative of freedom that she talks about through making. It was Make It Happen by Mariah Carey and you heard it right here on Out of the Box. That song was chosen by my guest on the show today, Ramesh Nithyandran, who is a visual artist. Ramesh, I want to jump to high school. It looks like it was the space where you started to develop these ideas around religion and gender politics. I want to know how these things started to emerge in your life and your art and how art first started to become important to you in this way? I think, you know, art was always important to me. And as a child, I don't want to kind of give it more significance than it actually deserves, but I just always loved drawing and I loved making, like I liked cooking. I liked, like, I just loved, you know, transforming matter in creative ways, if that's how to put it. And, you know, I went to high school at Sydney Boys High, which was a boys' school and it was really academic. And, like, I was just so devo that I had to go to a boys' school. Um, I was always hanging out with the girls in primary school and suddenly going to an all-boys' school, I think, was quite shocking for me as a 12 or 13-year-old. And I remember just feeling really, um, excuse the drama, but unsafe, not physically, but more like I just didn't know what to do. Um, Like, and the school that I went to was really academic, but on the other side had this kind of intense sporting thing that was kind of imposed upon us. And, you know, I never, that never felt, either of those things never felt natural to me. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I don't even like just personally, I don't think we should even be, I don't see why we even report on sport. I'm just think it's so blech. Like I'd rather like, I can't believe it's televised. I just don't get it. Fine. That would be my radical view of the world, just to not have sport have so much attention in the media and on television and in our culture generally. Um, I might get some hate mail for that, but I'm happy to get it. Um, And I think when I started studying art in high school and getting into like year 9, 10, 11, 12, where we actually could choose to study art, was when we were doing these kinds of case studies on artists that were actually challenging ideas about their time and place and artists that were engaging with feminism or queer politics or, you know, the histories of colonisation or racism. And in other subjects like English or history, we weren't actually given opportunities to explore those things in really kind of open ways. And I think looking at artists' works who are critical of their time and place and are critical of oppressive structures allows young people to actually have discussions that are a bit more open and less linear because we were able to look at an artwork and talk about how it made us feel or how it linked to what we were experiencing now. 
Whereas if in, say, English or history, it was more about source analysis or more of a technical analysis. So I guess in the art room, I felt more of a sense of belonging because I felt a connection in terms of values with the syllabus in that we were obliged to think about how people were engaging with their time and place in critical or progressive ways. Um, I just want to kind of say that I don't want to romantic... Like, there's heaps of art that's orthodox and mainstream and, you know, privileges heteronormativity and capitalism and all those things. I think art just reflects our time and place. So, of course, there's going to be really orthodox art practice, art practices. Um, but the ones that I always loved learning about were the ones that were challenging. And I think that's when I started to really feel a connection to art as a discourse rather than just an act. So in this period in your life, were you looking to the future and thinking that being a practicing artist might be something that you would pursue? Um, I never thought it was possible. You know, it, it was almost like some kind of um, dream. Like I remember going to galleries or museums and not feeling like um, reflected in that sense. And that's okay. Like in some ways, museums feel like some kind of sacred space. And, you know, as a, as a young person, it's really unclear how people's works end up in those contexts and how the public consumes and engages with those things. But I think year 11, 12, where I was actually thinking about university was when I started to consider the possibility of either being in an art industry or becoming an artist. And I think, you know, it's only been a, like, it's a really strange question because I think some people who may be from more materially privileged backgrounds are able to not feel that sense of risk or urgency when they choose to study a non-vocational degree for a few years. Whereas I think people who come from cultures like mine, um, it's actually quite subversive to go to university and study something like fine arts, which people in our community still believe doesn't have vocational or financial uh, benefits or stability. And for the next part of the show, I do want to discuss what it means to study art at a tertiary level and the vocational stability that it might provide. But first, let's listen to a song by Aaliyah. Why have you chosen this one? I think the kind of middle of my life, I think, was when I really started to think about middle of my life as if I'm not existing. But um, I think when I was a teenager, I think, and a young adult, so like 16, 17, 18, like making art for me was, I think, what gave me a sense of self. And I think it really built my self-esteem. Um, you know, I, thought, I, I was actually not very social. I wasn't, I was actually quite shy as a young person. Um, I didn't really feel like um, I was very, I didn't have many friends. I wasn't very popular. Um, so I think that solace I had in looking at artists and making art and is what made me feel that sense of self. And what I really love about Aaliyah is that she had this effortlessly cool thing about her. Um, you know, I, I remember watching her videos as a young person and she just, I just thought she was the coolest 
person ever. Um, just her styling and the way she sung, which wasn't oversung. It was almost like she exhaled her music. And, um, this song, I kind of love it. It's this, it's just, it's, it's a love song, but it's almost like this, um, it reminds me of kind of being in a playground and having a connection with someone that's totally imagined. Um, and, I'm not talking... I kind of see this song as how I sometimes saw making things, you know? It was just cool, it was easy and enjoyable. Yeah, I I love that description of exhaling her music. And we'll jump into that right now on FBI. It's Aaliyah and Street Thing. Because... You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the website or the podcast, that was Street Thing by Aaliyah, and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Ramesh Nithyandran. We did begin just now to touch on studying art at a higher level and what it means to pursue art in a tertiary space. Why do you think it's important for practicing artists to do that? Art education or tertiary art, tertiary training in art is still the primary way in which artists become professional artists, right? So it's not the only way and people train in all different kinds of ways, but it seems that university training in fine arts or visual arts is something that most professional artists have. Um, So I think it's a reasonable assumption to make that doing a degree in fine arts can actually help you become a professional artist. Um, But I think what we can do is think about what it is about the tertiary training that does that. And I think, for me, my belief is that there's a lot of different things, and it's not just about the syllabus, it's not just about the training, it's about the... um, it's about the contacts, it's about the connection. And the other thing is, it's about learning a literacy around the industry. So I think something that I really think is important to de- de- demystify is that, you know, art is labour, um, art is entrenched in capitalism, art is entrenched in industry and the government, just like any other industry. And I think that's really important to see art as a valid form of labour, So, you know, when we legislate and create policy, we can actually, you know, value our workforce in those terms that are understandable to people in government who are making decisions about what we do um, and our contributions to cultural life. So I have a kind of love-hate relationship with tertiary training in an art context. So, you know, when I was studying fine arts, I'm just going to be pretty direct here. I I don't think I learnt... I don't think... I think I learnt more about what I didn't want to do than what I did want to do. You know, when I studied painting and when I... I majored in painting and at the time we had to choose a medium to major in. And, you know, I don't remember learning about artists who were from parts of the world that were... um, 
be, that weren't either, you know, Australia or Europe or America. And I think that's just, just to sound a little bit, just to be dramatic for dramatic purposes. I think that's a little bit tragic when we think about how artists of my generation were trained, that we weren't looking to places like, you know, artists who are working in South Africa or China or Brazil or India even. Um, so, you know, when I, and I think it's changing now, I think we understand that Australian artists or art, people who are making art in our time and place need to connect to global discourses. And that means understanding that modernism or Eurocentric histories are just one history that exists amongst a whole range of other histories that have been operating in parallel. Um, So I guess when I'm teaching, I try and be really clear that, you know, that art education is, is is not neutral. You know, the way you're trained is about impressing certain values on artists. So, you know, if we look at the art education landscape around Sydney, there's this view that, you know, if you go to UNSW Art and Design where I lecture, um, you're being, you're, you become more conceptual. Um, whereas if you go to NAS, you learn more technical skills. Um, and these are all falsities or myths. It's just that there are certain values embedded in those degree programs. Um, and, they link to a whole range of things like, you know, UNSW is embedded in a broader um, system of a kind of sandstone university that links to a whole range of other departments where an institution like NAS has the privilege of being a private university that doesn't, has to an- doesn't have to answer to other, fa- other kinds of faculties. Um, so I know I'm rambling here, but I think the point that I want to just kind of drive is that Art education for me gave me a community. It gave me the language. Um, It also gave me a sense of understanding what kinds of methods to use in my studio. You know, I don't think... I think people believe that artists sometimes get a glass of wine and make their work when it's actually... There's actually so much more going on. That was a a really hard question to answer. No, no, I I liked it. I I particularly liked what you said about art education not being neutral because I saw in the pre-interview you described your style as um, a non-style. Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) Which almost, like, comes with, like, this neutrality. The next song you've chosen is called Black Parade. It's by Beyonce. Walk me through this one. Why did you pick it? You know, I'm just... I don't think I have a friend who doesn't love Beyonce and I think there's something so amazing about her rigour and entertainment and the way in which she presents herself and I just think she's such an icon and I think what I really loved about her is I remember, you know, waking up in the morning and watching the video to Say My Name um, as like a, what, 13-year-old and just thinking that Destiny's Child was so cool and I just love the song. And so I was always following them. And I guess when I saw the shift when Beyonce started to use her platform to talk about um, societal issues she was passionate about um, was when I really kind of thought, hey, like, you know, being an artist and creating things, you actually have a really amazing opportunity. Um, like, I think as an artist... 
we're often obliged to engage in types of activism. And for me, I think visibility is something I've always found to be really important. You know, I'm, I've worked with pro- in problematic contexts and what I always think is, for me, it's about audience engagement, you know, presenting my artwork, which I hope has certain values to it. And, um, you know, being visible, I think, is really important to me. And I think this song, which is a celebratory, you know, anthem to, you know, her ancestry, I feel is just such an inspiring tune. You are tuned in to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. That song was by Beyonce. It was called Black Parade. And my guest on the show today chose it. His name is Ramesh Nithyandran. He's a visual artist. And today his exhibition, The Guardians, kicks off at Sullivan and Strumpf. Tell me about the exhibition, Ramesh. So I've worked with Sullivan and Strumpf for about five years now. Um, So it's been really amazing working with them. And I guess part of the arts ecology are private or commercial galleries that work with contemporary artists um, to essentially sell their work and build their professional capacity. Um, So my show with them is a work, there'll be about 22 works, and I've gone for something a little bit different to what people may expect from me if they've been following um, the kinds of works that I've presented. And I'm doing this kind of show of a mass of sculptures all on these really formal white plinths. And the show is called The Guardians. And when I was developing the imagery and thinking about what these works actually could be and how they could exist functionally or rhetorically, I was looking to the instances of Guardian figures across regions. And what I found really interesting through that very specific form of research was if you look at places like Asia or places within Asia, you know, in India or Japan, um, often they have door gate guardians. And these are really these kinds of fierce, monstrous forms that are meant to kind of, you know, um, omit bad energy. And through that omission um, or scaring away, it's actually a welcome gesture. And I found that kind of tension between, you know, monstrosity and welcome and scaring away and energy, a really interesting one. But the other thing I thought about was I always try and make my works accessible on a number of levels. And I thought the framework of a guardian is something that people can come to the work and quite quickly form some kind of reading. Um, I guess I, I'm i into... I For me as an artist, I think I want to be democratic. I want to have people be able to respond to the work in a number of ways without specific art training. And I think for me, like, I'm so uninterested in art about art history or contemporary art that engages with contemporary art because I just feel like the world is so big and there are so many things we can explore. Why are we just making art about other artists' works that that 
you know, only a very small amount of the population can engage with. Um, so I think for me, you know, I was thinking about films and Disney and I was thinking about sculpture in Asia. I was thinking about, um, you know, digital emojis. I was thinking about antivirus software. I was thinking about everything that what guardianship actually means in a 21st century kind of context. That's incredible. And yeah, I'll pop the details to that exhibition up on the programs page on fbiradio.com. From a logistical standpoint, you know, in terms of COVID, is there going to be a virtual side to that as well? Yeah. So there'll be an, there'll be an online viewing room and a video walkthrough, but the, we're hoping that people can visit the gallery in person um, and the show's on for a month, but I don't think there'll be events, but it should be accessible physically if people feel comfortable. Ramesh Nithyandran, thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today. Um, thanks, Mia. It was actually really enjoyable talking about um, my life personally. I've only really felt comfortable to do that in the last couple of years, so thanks for giving me that space. Thank you. You sound surprised that this interview was enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I think as artists, we sometimes don't know if our experiences are that relevant or even interesting to people. Yeah. Like, I can accept my artworks might be interesting to people, but I don't know if my story as a person is interesting to people. Well, we'll we'll find out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, You've chosen a Lady Gaga song to finish the interview with. Tell me about this one. I guess from thinking about this interview and when we discussed what we might talk about, I knew that a lot of these, a lot of our discussion points were going to be quite dense or quite heavy or about, um, you know, really delicate issues. So I wanted to end with something a little bit lighter. Um, and it's a song by Lady Gaga that's a bit less known and it's called Hair. And I recently, a friend of mine, Santilla Chingaipe, who's this really amazing um, journalist who often writes about migration, um, we were talking, she's writing an article at the moment and she called me and she was just kind of laughing and she goes, you know, I was just reading all these articles about you and why do all these writers talk about your hair? Um, she was like, I don't get it. And we were both kind of just make, having a big laugh about it. And, um, there's this line in this Lady Gaga song where she says, I am my hair. And what I think as an artist, I think there's a really cheeky kind of reference here for me where, I often think about branding, um, you know, in this context and, you know, artists are making work, they're making products. Um, and sometimes their artwork is conflated with their person. And I think I'm one of those people where people almost view me in relation to my work. Um, and that's kind of why I chose that song. And I just love the kind of growing up narrative. I love the freedom. I love how she talks about self-expression through her physical being in there. And that's where I thought it would be good to end. Great. Let's hit play on that one right now on FBI Radio 94.5. It's Lady Gaga. The song's called Hair. Thanks for tuning in today. If you did want to listen back to the show, you can listen on the programs page on fbiradio.com or you can stream the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Big shout outs to my lovely producer, Mary, for doing the prep for this episode. And stick around. Lil Scott is right around the corner for lunch. <laughs> <laughs>